this war is uh, definitely the war for freedom. From my perspective, it is a war between freedom and between oppression. Hello and welcome to the Kickback Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. My name is Oksana Hus and I'm working at the University of Bologna with the BTECT ERC research project, Bottom-Up Initiatives and Anti-Corruption Technologies. And for the last 10 years, I was working on corruption and anti-corruption in Ukraine. Today's episode is dedicated to the uh, war of Russia against Ukraine. And we have a special guest, Svetlana Musiaka, a lawyer from Ukraine, who is also now based in Ukraine. So, Svetlana, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. We are very happy that uh, you took your time despite all the challenging situation. Uh, Svetlana is head of research and policy with NACO, the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission in the sector of security and defense. And she also was a head of corruption prevention and detection in the Ministry of Health. And before that, she worked for 10 years with the prosecutor's office of Ukraine. So Svetlana, you are working in the most challenging sectors with regards to corruption and anti-corruption. So prosecutor's office, healthcare, defense, Uh, It seems like no fun. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how did you get into this career path? Well, I guess it's kind of my superpower to find the most challenging areas of work and try to succeed in them. So, um, yes, my career started uh, at the prosecutor's office. and It was a challenge even to have an access to this profession because at the time of uh, uh, 2004, it was uh, a challenge for a girl to apply uh, to to the prosecutor's office uh, to to learn in the academy. So after uh, I I was studying in uh, a national academy in Kharkiv, uh, named after Yaroslav the Wise at the special faculty dedicated to the prosecution uh, office. And uh, after finishing uh, this academy, I started uh, working in the Sumer region uh, at the ground. Uh, My field of work was um, public prosecution in criminal cases and uh, children right protection. So. After that, uh, due to some family uh, issues, I had to move to Sumer. So it's a region center in uh, Ukraine. And then I started my work uh, in uh, HR department. And that was a time when uh, the declarations of assets uh, were in place for the first time. And I was responsible for... Uh, learning for providing assistance in uh, uh, for the prosecutor staff uh, to uh, applying those declarations and uh, learning how to mitigate it and all these uh, issues connected with uh, the first uh, law on uh, corruption prevention. 
And uh, then uh, again, uh, my life changed and I have to move to Kiev. And uh, I choose uh, to change my career path and to look for something new. Um, but uh, I realized that anti-corruption is the most interesting part of the of my profession at that time, and I still believe in it. Uh, that's why I uh, applied uh, for the open context uh, to the position of the head anti-corruption unit in the Ministry of Health. At that time, I knew nothing about uh, transformation of healthcare, about Ulana Subrun's team, but uh, I was lucky to win this contest and uh, I became the head of anti-corruption unit in the Ministry of Health. It was a tiny team. We were only three uh, responsible for all anti-corruption work inside the ministry, uh, in the legal entities uh, under the Ministry of Health, and uh, let's say for the whole uh, healthcare sector in Ukraine. We had some success stories, so for example, uh, we uh, were able to uh, to launch a process of open contest for the position of um, chief officers, let's say, of um, uh, of hospitals, the directors of hospitals. Uh, we created a rule uh, according to them. All those directors of hospitals all over Ukraine, uh, I mean state or local hospitals, applied to test with the participation of civil uh, society organization and uh, community to which this uh, hospital is situated. Uh, so we had uh, some other uh, wins and, uh, of course, they were some losers because uh, you know team of three even very motivative and very effective as we were is uh, not enough to relaunch the whole system but we managed to do pretty a lot uh, after political circumstances uh, and change of the acting minister uh, dr Soprun, uh, we had uh, well, I choose to leave uh, the ministry and uh, to try myself in different field. So to shift my position into uh, uh, civil society organization and try to apply my expertise in this field. So Svetlana, can you please tell me how NACO functions, how your team looks like in general, uh, Tell us a few words about the organization, maybe also how it was founded. Okay, to start with, uh, NACO, or the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission, we are civil society organization uh, and we aim to reduce the level of corruption and advance good governments in the areas critical for Ukraine's national security, namely defense and uh, security sector of Ukraine. Uh, NACO uh, was established in 2016 uh, when uh, Ukrainian civil activists and international experts uh, create uh, NACO uh, under the umbrella of uh, TI defense and security based in London. 
And it, at first, uh, we were focused on Ukraine's defense sector exclusively. And uh, at that time, NACO consisted of three Ukrainian and three international experts. And in 2019, with the support of its founders, NACO grew into an independent civil society organization and uh, to reflect the broadening of our mandate, uh, we received a new name. Uh, we uh, emphasize that we will be focusing not only on the defense and corruption sector, and uh, we are now the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission, and uh, we uh, continue our strategic partnership with the Transparency International Movement and the Trilateral Memorandum of Understanding. And uh, the focus of our work is uh, to promote policy changes in the defense uh, sector in other sectors crucial for the national security through our research-based advocacy. Uh, we have success stories in defense procurement reform, implementing corporate governance standards in defense industry, reducing corruptional uh, risks in the Ministry of Defense. And uh, after the 24th of uh, February 2022, our team shifted to advocacy, uh, to seeking international support for Ukraine, but we are still looking forward to continuing and restarting our research projects. Svetlana, and how does NACO fit into general anti-corruption structure in Ukraine? You mentioned that you uh, moved purposefully from defense subject to a broader uh, agenda. So how does it fit into the general structure of anti-corruption authorities in Ukraine? And maybe for the audience who are not uh, acquainted with it, you can say a few words, how does it look uh, in Ukraine now? Which agencies do we have and which of them are uh, working and are effective? Uh, well, uh, to start with, we have uh, a broad architecture of anti-corruption institutions, both in the state sector and the civil society sector. Uh, obviously, NACO is a part of civil society sector, uh, among other uh, NGOs and uh, expert communities. Um, but the point is that uh, our diverse uh, civil society anti-corruption uh, uh, community is uh, cooperating and providing expertise and support to our state bodies. And from the state side, uh, the architecture of anti-corruption bodies is also various. We have uh, a specific anti-corruption bodies, for example, National Agency on Prevention Corruption, National Anti-Corruption Bureau, the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, and the highest anti-corruption court. So those bodies are in, in 
let's say, specific anti-corruptional uh, branch of uh, state bodies. Uh, but uh, on the other side, we have uh, anti-corruptional specialists embedded in almost every uh, ministry, agency, or even a local uh, authority. So they are authorized units or authorized persons on corruption prevention. And they are responsible to uh, assessing corruption risks, to providing consultants and uh, expertise to their staff, uh, to supporting anti-corruption initiatives inside ministries, inside uh, state agencies, inside regional state administrations, and so on. So uh, they are focused mostly on prevention, on uh, providing support to the staff and uh, of supporting whistleblowers amongst uh, the staff or amongst uh, the clients of some body. And uh, again, the prominent feature of this anti-corruptional uh, architecture is that all parts of it uh, collaborate and cooperate uh, and put our joint efforts to achieve uh, our priorities in combating corruption and minimizing corruption risks in uh, Ukraine. There seem to be a quite uh, uh, large affinity in Ukraine towards anti-corruption. And I would like to speak with you a little bit more about the context and the uh, structure of anti-corruption in Ukraine. But before jumping into it, I would like to make a, a short uh, historical discourse as one of substantiations that Putin has uh, for this war of invasion was that Ukraine is not a state and has not no own history. Well, even anti-corruption history shows us that there is a long history of Ukraine. So. In 1710, in the Parisia siege or the Parisia host, we had the constitution of Polite And this constitution established the principles of separation of powers in government between legislative, executive, and judiciary branches of power. So that was not only the one in, uh, innovation, but this constitution also prescribed some anti-corruption regulations for judiciary. In fact, Ukraine was doing anti-corruption even before the U.S. declaration of independence. And then if we jump into 1990s, right after the independence was gained in 1994, the second president of Ukraine, Leonid Kuchma, started already producing first legislation, infrastructure of anti-corruption, first anti-corruption institutions. And even though uh, these institutions were sometimes in use, misused for political purposes, still the topic was always there in the society, even before Council of Europe or uh, UN started bringing anti-corruption to the uh, global uh, agenda. So there is kind of this affinity in the society and we had this revolutions, 2004 revolution, the Orange Revolution, it was 
against electoral fraud, the 2014 revolution of dignity. It was against the large-scale political corruption under uh, former President Yanukovych. So there was this developing, evolving resistance in the society against corruption permanently. And you mentioned that in your experience, when you were working, especially in the Ministry of Health, you managed to do some good steps to reach some uh, um, successes. Why do you think was it possible? What changed? Why the state that is internationally perceived as very corrupt was able to reach some successes after 2014-15? Well, uh, what I see from the very beginning of my career, let's say from the prosecutor's office and then in the Ministry of Health and then in the NGOs, I see that we can uh, gain success if we are working together. So uh, the very important uh, key to success is uh, collaboration, is cooperation and uniting our efforts to, uh, to succeed. And in this case, we can do a lot. Uh, for example, uh, when I just um, came to the Ministry of Health, one of the top priority uh, was um, assessing corruption risks in the Ministry of Health and creating an anti-corruption program. And according to the legislation, this process should be uh, held together with uh, experts and with NGOs. And that was a key to success. We managed to create a group, uh, including uh, the staff of ministry, key staff, and uh, representatives of the NGO and civil society sector. And together, we assessed uh, multiply uh, streams of work in the ministry and created a an evidence-based and uh, well-developed uh, anti-corruption program. So it was the first uh, time in the ministry for creating such a program, and it was uh, pretty successful. Um, also, we could not obviously mitigate all corruption risks, but we uh, set our priorities, and those priorities were not only for the ministry, you know, not only for the bureaucracy, but they were reassessed from the civil society and approved and changed. And it was a result of our unity and our work on the same project. And then when I became a part of NACO team, I see that really our collaboration cooperation uh, is fruitful. So when a civil society organization, an expert, an international community uh, choose to work together with uh, governmental structures, not only to criticize uh, every step of the governmental agency, but uh, to providing support to 
providing expert opinion on what can be the best practice for this or for that, what can be uh, the solution for the problems we face. So this kind of work is very productive and very fruitful. For example, we can um, talk about uh, defense industry reform, which started uh, at the break of the war. Uh, but the roots of this reform were planted long back ago. So uh, after the revolution of dignity, uh, we tried to reassess our defense uh, sector, defense and security sector, because we understood that there is an urgent need to change the uh, agenda to bring us uh, closer to the Euro-Atlantic and NATO standards. And one uh, particular sphere of our interest as NGO was the defense industry sector. So we have Ukrabron from it's a large conglomerate of different state defense enterprises and legal entities. Uh, they are most of them are like Soviet styles, uh, Soviet style legal entities, and uh, which made them close for uh, international cooperation. It is impossible, for example, for the uh, there is even no uh, translation in English because there is no such thing in uh, other uh, system of law as um, it's impossible for them to cooperate and with uh, international partners to seek their investitions investments, uh, to seek for investments and uh, to work together. That's why it was the key priority. Uh, we started with, uh, the, um, with proposing uh, to conduct an audit and particularly forensic audit for the Ukrabron prom or for its um, part, you know, concrete for its part, for some uh, plants, for example, we managed to help with a forensic audit on Antonov plant. And uh, uh, it was a long pass, but we succeed and uh, we managed to help with uh, the audit with the help of our international partners. Uh, we wrote the terms of reference, we, I mean, NACO team, and then the selected uh, film provided an audit and its uh, its results were considered in further development of the reform. Uh, then, uh, after the audit, uh, we understood that we need to change the system from the scratch and uh, to transform all those Soviet-style entities uh, to the modern LLCs and uh, joint stock companies. To open the window for investments and for international collaboration and for a fruitful uh, cooperation with uh, uh, foreign um, teams. So we started to draft uh, law, the short uh, uh, 
title is uh, a law on uh, corporatization. The long title is the law on peculiarities on transformation of state um, defense industry enterprises. And uh, uh, this is a perfect example of cooperation between uh, governmental uh, agencies, uh, namely Ukrobronprom, uh, Ministry of Economy, Ministry of the Strategic um, Industries, Cabinet of Ministry, and uh, uh, between other civil society organizations, because we as NACO took uh, part in uh, um, drafting those provisions of law in advocating um, important provisions. For example, um, the law which was adopted in 2021 proclaims that the transformation of the whole state defense industry should be held in accordance with OECD corporate governance principles. And that's why uh, we put a frame for all further development. Um, unfortunately, uh, we had no time to implement this law in full because of the war. But uh, I guess that it could be one of our priority after our victory. You've touched upon many, many interesting uh, things. And just as a, a remark for the audience who is not that familiar with Ukraine, Ukraine has a very elaborated military and defense uh, uh, industry. And it started not with the independence, but already in the Soviet time, the Soviet militarization in 50s and 60s, Ukraine, uh, Soviet Ukraine played a key role in all the Soviet Union with regards to military industry. So for example, turbines and uh, guidance systems, they were made in Kharkiv. Ships and submarines, they were produced in Kherson and later in Mykolaiv, which is now very much under attack. The Antonov Design Bureau was relocated to Kyiv and uh, serial production of long-range nuclear missiles and intercontinental ballistic missiles was launched in Dnipropetrovsk, which is Dnipro today. And a fun fact is that uh, second president of Ukraine, Leonid Kuchma, he was director of the Yushmash factory in Dnipro, exactly this factory that produced uh, long-range nuclear missiles. So, uh, Oresia Kulik, a good uh, colleague of mine, she did extensive research uh, showing that uh, even economic elites in Ukraine, in independent Ukraine, they kind of reflect this geography uh, or map uh, what was going on in uh, military industry in Soviet Union. So all the clans like Kyiv clan, Dnipropetrovsk clan, uh, Kharkiv elites, they were taking their roots from the military industry. So the Ukr Oboron Prom, what uh, Svetlana mentioned, is an association of multi-product uh, enterprises in the defense industry in Ukraine that combine those companies that were already in place in the Soviet Union. And it seems like tremendous change that you reach in terms of 
reform of these companies, as you said, from the Soviet style to uh, updated new global companies only within of five or six years. And you mentioned this collaboration between different ministries and civil society that was a key factor uh, in this reform and success. I can imagine that there were many conflicts and it's not possible that in such a closed industry like defense industry, they are uh, welcoming everyone with open doors and saying civil society, please come. So the example of Ukraine is a quite unique one. I'm not uh, aware of other states. I'm not an expert in this topic, but I can imagine that there are not many states who are having this collaboration, especially in such a sensitive sector as a defense sector. So why do you think was it possible and Maybe you know how the conflicts were handled, where the pressure came from. How was it possible to launch this collaboration? Uh, well, uh, what I can uh, say about uh, the recipe to successful collaboration is not to put uh, all powers in one center. And that's why we succeed. Uh, we as NGO in NACO, as NGO is uh, quite reputable and uh, evidence, uh, we, we produce evidence-based uh, approach in our work and all of our arguments are based on our research and best practices. It's not, you know, empty crit critique uh, just for critique. We propose solutions, we see problems, and we can advise how to solve them. So uh, another thing is that uh, international community in Ukraine and its representatives are also uh, very powerful and reputable, and their voice is heard. And uh, uh, when we had, uh, I don't like to say conflicts, it was not a conflict, it was rather a dispute, you know, because as you've mentioned, it is very sensitive uh, sphere and very sensitive topic. Uh, and uh, from 2014, we all were, aware that uh, the threat from the Russia side uh, is there and we need to handle our problems quickly and in most efficient way. And uh, obviously it plays uh, its role in um, uh, governmental agencies' attitude towards uh, the civil society um, because we say that, okay, so here is a problem and here is possible solutions for this problem. We can choose A, B, C, and these are the consequences of each solution. And uh, when we uh, saw that uh, the government, let's say the officials or the ministry or somebody else or with powers to decide, uh, tend to choose um, outdated solution, we could raise our voice in advocacy, in public campaigns, in uniting civil society organizations 
to speak openly about problems that um, arise. And when we were able to cooperate with, uh, let's say, G7 or uh, our US partners or other, uh, our foreign allies, uh, our voice uh, was heard and it was uh, so again this kind of collaboration between civil society international uh, organizations and representatives of our euro-atlantic allies uh, our joint efforts uh, succeed because we have uh, a reputation we have our um, arguments to uh, to provide and to convince uh, our governmental officials to choose the most efficient and the best way to solve our problems. And what we saw from our past efforts to provide uh, reforms in defense and security sector is the fact that the bottleneck for reforms was when the officials um, tend to Soviet style, you know, to return to all uh, old agenda of uh, uh, vertical uh, hierarchy and um, uh, to orders uh, from the ministry to, let's say, legal entity to do something without any freedom of uh, freedom of choice. So uh, this was a bottleneck uh, of reforms. And uh, if we were able to put uh, this problem at the spotlight and to say, okay, so you uh, want to choose this solution not because it's the best one, because it's the most comfortable for you, and uh, to propose, we were able to propose our arguments and uh, uh, to bring our best practices uh, to the table. And that's how we succeed. So in addition to collaboration, it seems that constructive approach uh, was uh, the key to succeed. And uh, this is not that self-evident in anti-corruption because usually civil society fulfills the role of the watchdog and it's rather in the confrontation to the authorities because no one wants to be controlled or told what to do. But it seems that your informed approach and uh, research evidence-based approach, it helped to bring up the arguments and the common enemy united uh, all these forces. Mm -hmm. uh, so it made uh, the window open for reform and for change for better. You were mentioning sometimes this uh, Soviet time approach. Maybe you can more elaborate what is, uh, or, or put it more together, more clearly clarify what is a uh, Soviet approach and what is different now for those uh, our, in our audience who are not familiar maybe with the practices in Soviet Union and uh, don't understand the, the difference, what is different in Ukraine now? So when we are using the terms of Soviet style of governance, 
I mean that uh, the state body in, in Soviet style is ensures strict control over everything that can be controlled. So uh, thus uh, the state uh, is able to stop any market-related mechanism to be de developed, any transparency uh, mechanism to be provided. So um, it's uh, the Soviet paradigm of government governance, you know, to uh, the thought that the state knows better than the market, than the civil society organization, than any other partner or any other actor in this field. So uh, for the defense sector, um, the Soviet style of governance is usually meant that the state provides strict control over everything. It uh, provides uh, its decision without consultations or ignoring position of other key stakeholders. And uh, state would be operating in full, um, let's say, overclassification by classifying and closing access to every information possible. So I guess that these are three main features for the Soviet-style governance. A full control, uh, ignorance to the other points of view, and uh, uh, closing uh, or limiting the access to information to the most possible uh, borders. This seems a very interesting point. How do you manage uh, in NACO or what is your philosophy with regards to transparency uh, in the defense sector? Because this is maybe the only sector that uh, where, um, where lack of transparency can be justified very well because a lot of transparency can be a threat to the national security. So where do you see the lines or borders? How much transparency is needed and is healthy? And how do you deal with those issues? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd like to start with the point that NACO team uh, has relevant experience in regarding uh, classification and declassification because, uh, well, we were the only NGO whose recommendations were partially included in the working version, working version of the draft law on the secrecy. And it's, uh, it has been developed before the war and it uh, still hasn't been adopted yet. But uh, um, again, it will be one of our priority after our victory. Uh, so what uh, can I say about NACO's approach to the classification, classifying and declassifying of information? Uh, obviously, it is very sensitive aspect. And uh, as you've mentioned, uh, it can be justified to close everything possible. But what we uh, should be aware of? First, um, 
in the modern uh, world, we can find a lot of answers uh, from the open sources. And even without, let's say, we classified uh, some uh, provisions of, um, let's say, defense procurement, for example. We classified uh, the amount of food for our army. And, uh, but from the open sources, um, any uh, experienced analyst uh, could find uh, the amounts and uh, the plants and uh, the producers of those food supplies for the army and even to track when and where and in what uh, amount those food supplies uh, were procured or um, let's say were procured or were provided to the army. So what's the point of classifying such kind of information if we can find a lot about it from the open sources with some time and effort? And the second point is that classification and classifying of information has its price. Uh, we, uh, have, we have to provide uh, terms of classification to ensure necessary uh, resources for classifying information and to ensuring that the access to it is closed and secure as possible. So it's not uh, an, a free option. We can be sure about the security of our information only if we provide necessary resources. And amount of those resources can be significant. So the second point, classification of information has its price. And then we came to the, we came to the conclusion that we should classify and we uh, should be aware of price of this classification. And even if we decide that those um, issues should be classified, we should provide uh, rules for the classification, uh, for declassifying this information, for, uh, for lifting uh, the restrictions for the uh, assessment to this information and so on. And uh, next point uh, I'd like to mention is even we, even if we decide to classify some sphere of uh, defense sector, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't have any internal uh, rules of existing. We have a defense procurement system and it is a brand new defense procurement system according to the recently adopted law, which uh, came into force from the 1st of January 2021. And according to this law, all defense procurement uh, procedures divided into open and closed. So open are provided uh, with uh, the help of uh, electronic procurement system Prozoro with some peculiarities, but at all it is open. But even closed 
defense procurement procedures, uh, which are classified and the access to them is restricted. They are not fully closed. Uh, for example, uh, the ministries and governmental bodies uh, who deals uh, with um, this close uh, defense procurement procedures, uh, they should uh, provide uh, the amount of uh, money, which is, uh, so they should provide the budget for those close defense procurement. And it should be uh, provided via via their website, so uh, it should be open. Uh, then, even in a, a classified and closed procedure of adopting the plan for the closed defense uh, procurement, uh, there is a parliamentary oversight over this process. So the committee of our parliament, Verkhovna Rada, uh, participated in uh, creating and approving the plans for the def closed defense procurement procedures. Uh, so even if we, uh, we decide to close from the, uh, from the public, from the society, some sphere of uh, defense industry, it should have rules of existing, it should have rules of how to work inside this is uh, you know closed perimeter this is very uh, useful that you elaborated at this uh, on this difference and there is a fun fact that two weeks after the invasion the national agency for corruption prevention wrote a letter to the minister of defense of russia federation shoigu thanking him for corruption in russian defense sector and providing some evidence from the battlefield, uh, like, for example, that uh, cardboard uh, egg trays were used for protection uh, vests or uh, tank protection. Why do you think Ukraine is different in these terms from Russia? Uh, it looks like no one in the world was expecting Ukrainian army staying so strongly and for three weeks, we are um, we are conducting this interview on the 18th of March. So this is 22nd day of war. And uh, Russia still didn't reach its uh, military goals. And most cities in Ukraine, main military targets, they are staying. They are providing defense. And on the other hand, we see um, a lot of damages to the Russian army. And one of the points might be corruption. So even though the Transparency International Defense and Security, they are providing the index of corruption in defense sector. And according to the index, it seems that Ukraine and Russia are in the same section as uh, high uh, risk countries. We see here perhaps some differences. So what is your take on that? Is it uh, this transformation from Soviet past to the new updated model of governance in the defense sector that took place in Ukraine, but didn't have time to be captured quantitatively on the measures uh, in the indexes? Is there something else, or maybe this is just uh, information war that Ukraine is winning and we don't see 
many things that are going on on the ground? Uh, well, my assumption uh, as follows, you know, I can see several points which are useful to underline. Uh, first of all, we all remember that uh, uh, all kinds of corruption index provided by Transparency International or Transparency International Defense and Security, as they are based on perception. And uh, uh, Ukraine is the democracy with established freedom of speech and information. And we can openly discuss any corruption issues and problems, even in traditionally closed defense sector. For example, um, we in Ukraine remember very well that uh, in uh, 2019, uh, at the break of the uh, presidential elections, Bihus um, Inform uh, produced several programs dedicated to the corruption in uh, uh, in Prom, and it assumed to be one of the possible reasons uh, for uh, Poroshenko to lose this election. So. Could you imagine that independent um, investigative journalist can shape uh, their whole political agenda in the country? So again, we have established freedom of speech and information. And obviously we are talking about corruption issues a lot. And if you take a look at the news before the war, uh, my guess is that around 60% of news feed will be somehow dedicated to the corruption issues. And that's why uh, my guess is that on a corruption perception index, Ukraine um, has uh, those ranks and those points as it has. So the next point is that um, uh, those indexes, uh, they, uh, they need uh, some time to capture all those reforms and transformations which uh, happen in the society. So um, there is a delay around one year or so. So we can provide uh, um, a reform and feel the results of this reform only after a year of its implementation. Uh, next, and we were talking about it previously, Ukraine, unlike the Russian Federation, has a very strong uh, civil society. And uh, variety of actors, NGOs, investigative journalists, um, international initiatives, uh, local communities, experts, uh, they provide uh, regular expertise to the government. They ensure oversight. They monitor and provide public critique if needed. Uh, so, our strong civil society is uh, the tremendous feature we have here. And uh, 
the next point I'd like to emphasize is that after 2014, with Russia's aggression against Ukraine, uh, we witnessed a change, a tremendous change in the defense and security sector. And after more than 30 years of complete post-Soviet closeness of the sector, it has partly opened for the dialogue and for the change. And uh, after the change in the government and uh, all those political circumstances, uh, we had a unique window of opportunity. And uh, in combination with the uh, financial and expert support from the international community in combination with their support from the uh, civil society organization in Ukraine, we managed to, to achieve considerable results uh, in the defense reform. We, we mentioned uh, state uh, defense industry reform, we've mentioned defense procurement reform, also, we uh, had a reform of military education, a reform of food service for servicemen, women, uh, selected achievements in democratic control over the defense sector, um, considerable progress in uh, gender equality in uh, armed forces and uh, defense sector. So we already started our transformation. Uh, we were on our way to, to reform, to transform our defense and military sector according to the Euro-Atlantic standards. And uh, I guess that that created a um, good fundament for, uh, for further uh, development and for our resistance in this war. And uh, the last point I'd like to mention, it is not uh, from the, you know, research and analysis uh, uh, field. It is uh, about our motivation. So this war is uh, definitely the war for freedom. It is not only the war Russia against Ukraine. From my perspective, it is a war between two orders, between democracy and uh, non-democratic state, between freedom and between oppression. And we have no other option than to win. Thank you, Svetlana. Thank you so much for enlightening interview. We could have uh, an episode for each of these reform directions you mentioned uh, to elaborate them in more depth. Uh, thank you for taking time under these difficult circumstances. Uh, I know that your husband has a birthday today and he's fighting for Kyiv and in Kyiv. And we keep uh, our fingers crossed that he will be safe and uh, that all this war uh, finds its end very soon. Is there anything you want to say to our audience? How can they support Ukraine? What can they do for Ukraine now? How can they stand with Ukraine right now? Well, 
you know, uh, I have a fear that with uh, with time, our work can be only a point in a newsfeed, and I ask all of our audience do anything they can to stay focused on this struggle for freedom because we are defending not only Ukraine, we are defending the whole free world because it is obvious that Russia won't stop and we had to stop it now. Everyone in their place. If you can uh, support us in media, please do that. If you can urge your uh, governmental officials to do something to support Ukraine, please do that. If you can support us uh, via humanitarian aid or any other sources, please do that. Please don't be indifferent to us. It is, it is not that we deserve fighting for our freedom and freedom of all civilized world. Thank you, Svetlana. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Our special mini-series on Ukraine will continue throughout the next weeks. If you want to learn more, check out the show notes and also use the timestamps in the show notes to navigate through the episode. If you want to support our podcast, please share this episode via social media. To stay updated, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. As always, Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is produced by Niels Kubis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke with assistance by Emi Assad and music by Kehan Gokar. Stay safe, everyone. Until next time.